the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From Talk 910 KNEW San Francisco, this is Rob Black. Rob talks about your money every weekday, live and local, from 10 to noon. Enjoy the show. Live from the Bay Area, your money, your life. This is Rob Black. Welcome in to the Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Right after Armstrong and Getty, get me. In between Beck, kind of got the odd little sandwich going between the three of us, right? To get your calls in the air, it's 800-345-5639. It's 800-345-5639. This is a show that can get you to retirement. That's the whole beginning and end of it. We'll talk a little movies on Fridays. We'll talk hockey with Dan Rusinowski. He's coming up. We got Brian Cooley, I believe, the tech guy from CNET. Probably the smartest tech person I've ever met as far as getting it and figuring it out and how it's going to work in our lives. If you've never heard me speak with Brian Cooley, I I personally would pay money to hear this guy speak. So we got that going for us today. Get your calls in the air. It's 800-345-5639. Call's been a little light lately. I guess everyone's doing well and they feel knowledgeable about money. Now, I got an email from someone and I, I want to start with, this is how world, stupid the world is. A guy named Marco sends me an email and says, I tried to ask you about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae on the phone. Basically, I think he called my television show. But your segment ran out of time. What do you think about investing in these stocks, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae? Right now, they're so low. And in theory, they'll go back up. If you buy now for 100 shares and it goes up five points, you can make a profit. What do you think about this? Stocks that I'm also looking at, Citigroup, Ford, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Marco could possibly be the dumbest person on the planet when it comes to understanding stocks. He looks at price. He sees a dollar. Ooh, it's cheap. But much like you, there's a difference between someone who makes $100,000 a year and someone who makes $10,000 a year. If the person who has $100,000 a year has a million dollars in debt, they're not all that wealthy, are they? And if the person who makes $100 a year has a million dollars in the bank... They're pretty wealthy. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have no money in the bank. They've had to borrow money from the United States government to cover massive losses. And at some point in time, they have to pay back the government. And when they do that, it'll probably make the companies worthless. In large part, it'll probably be done through some sort of bankruptcy filing. And when you go bankrupt, you basically say, see this debt? Bankrupt. Gone. These are government-sponsored entities. The stocks make no sense. I'd be very, very cautious because you have to look at stocks as people. And you have to look at how much debt does she have? How much uh, income does she have? How much uh, you know, goodwill does she have? you got to look at all that stuff. So there's just some people out there who just don't get it. He looks at the price of the stock and sees it as cheap. Honestly, I'd rather own a $1,000 stock, one $1,000 stock, than a $1,001 stocks. Odds of it doubling, same. Absolutely 100% the same. 
who are the people that, that fall for this? The emails, it says, hi, Rob. I believe he has highly successful business and takes good care of his employees. Great. Ben- um, hold on. Wait. Oh, this is, this is the email that I wanted to pull out. It's, uh, we apologies for the delay of your payment and all the inconveniences and inflict that we might have indulged you, though. However, we were having some minor problems with our payment system, which is inexplicable, and have held us stranded in indolent, not having the aspiration to vote our 100% assiduity into accrediting foreign payments. We apologize once again. Pastor John Timmerman of God Bless Church presented you and your profile to our bank, Guarantee Trust, as the rightful beneficiary in the inheritance fund. Basically, I just I inherited money. And to get this, all I have to do is send in my credit card for verification. <laughs> Who falls for these scams? They wanted my full name, my phone number, my contact address, my profession, my age, my marital status, my company's name, my position, and a credit card. Pretty funny, right? People actually do fall for that. It's, it's stunning to me. Let's talk about some of the other issues that are out there today. Home sales. This is the biggest story, in my opinion, of the day. We see that home sales rose 9.4% in September. And that's a pretty good number, right? 9.4% in September. September is the last real big month of, of home sales. Basically, goes spring into September. A lot of people on the East Coast, it's too cold to go out and buy houses. So, or it's, it's in the holiday season, so people don't go out and buy houses. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you get the basic idea, right? So anyway, home sales up 9.4%. Home resales rose in September to the highest level in more than two years, beating expectations. Buyers scrambled to complete their purchases before a tax credit for first-time homeowners expires. Now, the National Association of Realtors said that they saw sales rose 9.4% to a seasonally adjusted rate of $5.57 million, down from a revised pace of $5.1 million in August. Sales had been expected to rise in an annual pace of $5.3 million. Now, the median sales price was $174,000. That was down 8.5% from a year earlier. Slightly lower than August is 177000 So prices down year over year. So says Campbell Communications. It's a real estate agent firm. Says there's a mini boom going on in the housing market. The inventory of unsold homes on the market fell about 7% to $3.63 million. That's a 7.8-month supply at the current sales pace. It's the lowest level since March 2007. It's still a very high number. Anytime there's inventory over six months... You know, they say like semiconductor inventory, like if Intel comes out with a CPU, they got to sell it pretty fast because next year it's going to be smaller, cheaper, and faster. Same thing with houses. You got to sell them pretty fast if you want to get the price that you want. If you're to try to sell your house right now and it takes 7.8 months to sell it, that's going to freak you out. In large part, that's 7.8 mortgage payments that you have to pay. Got it? So that would freak you out if it's that empty. And nationwide sales are up nearly 24%. Sales rose around the country, especially in the West, where they grew 13%. Foreclosure sales are booming in cities like Los Angeles, San Diego, and Las Vegas. First-time home buyers and investors are snapping up these homes and taking advantage of low mortgage rates. Tell you what, mortgage rates are amazing right now. Buyers can also take advantage of a tax credit of 10% of the sales price or up to $8,000, whichever is higher. So home sales and housing construction have risen steadily after hitting bottom earlier this year, there's more supply that's going to come onto the marketplace. And that's the one issue you could look at this statically and say, Ooh, sales numbers are looking good. 
additional supplies can outpace demand. So we're not done with the real estate problem. And to be quite honest, I think there's going to be a new normal down the road. I think there's going to be a new normal in the economy. I think there's going to be a new normal in the employment rate. I think there's going to be a new normal in what we can expect from housing. In all of housing right now, I see the high end as having the biggest problem. And the low end is likely to have put, hit, put in bottom. And the jump in sales was mostly due to first-time homebuyers entering the market before the big tax breaks end in November. Beyond the headline sales numbers, there was another good piece of news on the data release. Distressed properties. They account for almost 50% of sales throughout the spring and summer. They've declined by about 29%. Now, sales of non-distressed homes make it more likely that consumers will start looking at more expensive properties and helping rise that median price ladder. Now, the increase in sales have helped push the total available supply down to 7.8 months. Prices will continue to trend down as long as distressed properties make a significant chunk of the sales. So prices still going lower. 800-345-5639. It's 800-345-5639. Pepsi. This was one of those stories that you almost can't believe until you see it and hear it. And I heard about it first, and then I saw it in, in the news later. Have you heard about AMP? You know about this whole marketing dilemma that they got into? They've got an application to help push AMP. And Pepsi, this is a big company, right? So their application was called AMP Up Before You Score. It was an iPhone application, and they're removing it from the iPhone application. They're removing it from the the store now. It promised to help men score with different types of women about a week after it was criticized for stereotyping and got pulled. But it taught us how to score with different types of women. Do you believe Pepsi made such a big marketing blunder? Or was it a blunder? Because I'm talking about it right now, and I never knew. I didn't know a thing one about AMP. So some people turn to booze for liquid courage with the opposite sex. Pepsi does this ad campaign that would have made Jack Daniels and Captain Morgan shake their boots. Now, the soda company, Pepsi, created an iPhone application called Amp Up Before You Score. It was aimed at helping men score with women. Now, they were trying to promote the Amp drink, obviously. The application provided pickup lines and other charming tools so that we could seduce a wide variety of female stereotypes. There's 24 of them. For instance, a bookworm. There was a cougar. There was an athlete. There was a women's studies majors. It had a brag feature in the application as well that would encourage you to brag about it and include the name, the date, and whatever details you remember about your successful hookup or your failed conquest. Now, PepsiCo... They said they're going to remove the application, of course, heated criticism. So pickup lines were like, let's, for instance, if it was a foreign exchange student, you'd say, let's try a little cultural exchange. I'll be your host family anytime. The goth girl, um, you know, she had one. There was just dreary, 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 dreary quotes. And again, it comes back to money in the economy, in large part, how we market. So I don't know. It looks like the... Marketing geniuses at Pepsi thinks that all men, you know, are still at puberty age as far as our sense of humor goes, because that application is just offensive. It's just offensive every way around. Let's go to break. 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. It's 800-345-5639 to get your calls in the air. It's the Rob Black Show, talking all things financial. 9, 10 a.m., more stimulating talk. Sit all cloudy and blitz with the cream of bottles lying everywhere. 
western oil can under my Bolivar chair. It's a Friday. I'm Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't throw this story out there. Amazon.com. Their shares hit an all-time high this morning. How did that happen? Well, they reported earnings last night. And one thing that they basically said was things aren't so bad. And if you take a look at it, perhaps what they're really saying is the economy is doing a little bit better than a lot of people expected it to. So I was pleased to see that those numbers. Let me give out a little bit more. Analysts today upgraded it to a buy from hold. They raised their price target to 131 from 81. That's a little bit right there. I'm I'm angry at this analyst. In large part, now you're upgrading it to buy from hold. Today, when it hits an all-time high, you're doing this. What's up with that? So, and, and why did you miss the whole rally in the shares for the last six months? During a conference call with reporters, CFO said consumers are continuing to spend at Amazon because of low prices and large selection. Amazon ended the quarter with more than 98 million active accounts, up 17% from last year. Up 17%. That's a pretty good number. How are they doing that? They're continuing to grow. They're also buying companies like Zappos. You know, you can buy shoes online and you can return them. And a lot of people thought it would never work, but it's actually worked out pretty well. Amazon's results reflect similar sales data from several other online retailers. Ebooks still make up a small portion of the overall book market. You know, Amazon's got this Kindle thing, and it's one of their best selling products, but the ebook's still not wildly hot yet. Now, Amazon faces tough competition from other companies like Sony and Barnes and Noble. Amazon said they intend to release software next month that lets people buy Kindle books and read them on a computer, regardless of they, whether or not they own a Kindle device or not. This is similar to an application already offered from Apple's iPhone and iPod Touch and may provide Amazon with a way to expand its ebook revenue. Hmm. Can't say that I'd really read a book on online. So, not yet. So anyway, Amazon shares it. Like I said, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw it out there. You know, the stock is far from cheap. I should throw that down. And it deserves to trade at a premium to its earnings growth, but it is far from cheap. There's a possibility that earnings could accelerate, and the fact that it's taking significant share from competition has to be thrown out there. Swine flu. Swine flu vaccine supplies in the United States. They're being hindered right now by production delays at two drug makers, two big drug makers, GlaxoSmithKline had failed to get regulatory approval for its product. So the U.S. will not receive 195 million doses because, that it had planned for by the end of the year because of delays. You know, you keep hearing more and more stories about how many kids have died this year from swine flu. It's up to like 95. That's a big number. It's twice as many of children die from the flu, seasonal flu in a regular year. You know, it's still far from how many kids die in car accidents, how many kids die from bad diagnoses. So let's not get too freaked out here. Glaxo and AstraZeneca. But this, again, the sad thing is they're children. Glaxo and AstraZeneca. If this was a flu that was killing old people, I think we'd all rejoice. We'd all say hallelujah. In large part, the old people are taking our Social Security and our Medicaid and Medi-Cal, and they're not paying income tax. They're paying low income taxes. And Swine flu its targeting the wrong people. It's targeting future taxpayers. So anyway, um, Glaxo and AstraZeneca, they're both based in London, and Sanofi is in Novartis. Well, Sanofi is in Paris. Novartis is in Switzerland. 
Um, the bulk of the U.S. supply, it's just not here. So we're not even close to where we want it to be. It's taking a little bit longer to fix the supplier, to fix the batch. So it's also known as H1N1. It's widespread in 41 states right now. Mortality rates have surpassed the threshold threshold of an epidemic. So 86 children have died from swine flu, more than the pediatric toll for a typical year of influence. And we're not even in November, December yet. That's when the real flu start to hit. December, January. So don't have enough of it. Now, remember in the earlier part of the show, I talked about a new normal. And it feels like there's just dead air. I feel like I'm talking on dead air. It's a weird feeling today. Some shows just aren't your best. And this one, I just, I feel like, I don't even know the radio's on. That's what it feels like. Remember I talked about uh, the new normal. You're going to hear this phrase more and more and more and more. And it's going to be annoying. Just like uh, I was one of the first people to tell you that we're in a recession. No big deal. We'll be out of recession. I mean, best time to invest, you've learned, is in a recession. That's when most people are fraught with fear and panic. That's when you can get the biggest opportunities. Anyway, Bill Miller said today, he's talking about Mohammed el Rian. Mohammed el Rian, he has a forecast for a long period of below average economic growth. Now, Bill Miller, he's a wildly successful portfolio manager. And for years and years and years and years, his portfolio would beat the S&P 500. That's what he became famous for. So... Bill Miller said, inside view of Elrion's perspectives, that makes a prediction about the future based on current conditions, a view that doesn't take historical precedence into account. The outside view is what he wants to say. So, is the new normal wrong? And no one really knows yet. The new normal basically implies that we always wanted unemployment, low unemployment, 4%, 5%. I think we're going to be happy with... Six percent, six and a half percent. We always wanted our economy to grow three to four percent. I think we're going to be happy with one to two percent. That's the whole idea on the new normal. El Elrion is the chief executive of PIMCO, Pacific Investment Management Company, and his new normal says expect lower returns. Now, why is he saying that? Well, PIMCO is one of the biggest bond uh, producers in the world. They sell an amazing amount of bonds. They're very, 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 very good at it. It's, they've got a strategist named uh, Bill Gross. He looks like a porn star. He's got that creepy hair that's all wiry and looks like uh, a wire brush. And he's got a mustache that you, know, you would only see in the porn industry or on a, a convicted sex pervert. He just he looks wrong. But So PIMCO, they do really well at selling bonds. And what are bonds? Bonds are great when there's not a lot of economic growth because you can count on their steady 4 to 6% rates of return. It's not too shabby. If the stock market's going to give you a 4 to 6% and there's risk in it, why not go with bonds? So Bill Miller, on the other hand, he's saying, you know, I think PIMCO's wrong. Now, Bill Miller's in a mutual fund, and he's counting on the economy to be chugging for his stocks and his you know, companies to do well. It just it throws out there, not conflicts of interest, but perceptions of your own business and how much you want them to be right. That's one of the things you have to get over if you're going to be a successful investor. Now, Miller, he recently read the book called Think Twice, and he uses the surprise loss of Big Brown and the Belmont Stakes as an example to, to illustrate the shortcomings of the, the competition's view. And I guess you would have to call it competition. Big Brown was a racehorse who had won the Kentucky Derby in the Preakness in 2008, and analysts were put in a 77% chance that the thoroughbred would win the uh, big big victory in the Belmont. 
had the analysts looked at how many horses won the third leg of the Triple Crown in the past after winning the first two, they wouldn't have been surprised by the loss. There was actually a precedent that there was a very good chance he wasn't going to win it. There was, you know, so many people were convinced otherwise, though. And right now people are convinced we're in a recession. Oh, it's going to be horrible for a long time. And that's what he's trying to say. The Great Depression may help put the arguments of the new normal into perspective. The U.S. economy expanded 17% in the first year of recovery from the bottom of the Depression. Now, if you use the size of the contraction as a proxy for the likely rebound and adjusting for the drop in the output of the recession, it would suggest economic growth of around 8% next year. Now, again, no one's calling for that. I give Miller credit. He's putting his, not his reputation, but he's, he's going out there and saying, okay, we can all think this way or we can think that way. And somewhere in between the two is the truth. So Miller's Leg Mason Value Trust, it was famous for a 15-year streak of beating the S&P 500. I don't want you to think Miller's right. I don't want you to think Elrion is right. I don't want you to think the new normal will be the new normal because, frick, we're Americans. And as Americans, we make things up. We, We create things. We're capitalists. Can we create our way out of this economic doldrum? I don't know. Guess we're going to have to wait to see. All I can tell you is if you're under the age of 50, you got to best invest and you got to keep doing it and you got to keep maxing it out and you got to keep saving. So one thing I can tell you is inflation's out there and what you get from Social Security ain't enough. You need a good million dollars by the time you retire if you want to pay yourself $40,000 a year in retirement. You'll get that 10000 20000 from Social Security after you pay taxes on it, 10000 And again, 40000 after you pay taxes on that, thirty thirty five thousand. So can you live off that? Off a million dollars. That's that's it. It's not a lot of money in retirement, is it? 800-345-5639. Coming up, Brian Cooley from CBS CNET. CBS CNET, Brian Cooley, tech guy. You're going to like him, I promise. 800-345-5639. It's the Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. 9:10 a.m. More stimulating talk. I'm Rob Black, typically talking all things financial. Everyone knows that I've got a childhood fascination with technology. I always wanted to come to Silicon Valley. I wanted to work for Atari. I wanted to make video games. didn't quite play out like that, but I did get out to Silicon Valley. One of the reasons why this man coming up right now, Brian Cooley, editor at large for CNET. Brian, you got me to California. And you haven't forgiven me yet. (laughs) Now, you you were my boss at CNET, and we did this great big I prefer the word colleagues. Well, I'd I'd refer... Prefer boss. Okay. So, okay. I was afraid of you. You could fire me. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'd ever do that. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Um, editor at large, what exactly does that mean? Well, it just means that I cover a lot of things broadly, but I do cover the automotive tech space, uh, you know, deeply. I really go into that. But I touch on all the categories that we cover. You know, CNET does all the reviews that you know, from the laptops to the cameras to the cell phones and all those different categories of tech. But I try and keep an overview on the entire space, kind of from a you know ten thousand foot level, and also try and keep a perspective on what the consumer wants and what they don't want. Okay, I, I think that's that's well put. Um, one of the things that 
you're doing right now. I, I, I think you had a Windows 7 house party, didn't you? Do we <laughs> well, want Windows well, 7? I, well, I certainly made fun of a dopey video that Microsoft did to kind of show you what a Windows 7 house party should look like. Uh, if you want to go over to CNETTV.com, you can just type in Windows 7 house party and the video will come up and you'll see why I think it was really stupid. But Windows 7 is not really stupid. Their promotional efforts aside, uh, this is uh, very different than Vista in terms of them getting it right and keeping their head screwed on straight. We like it. Bottom line is, it is a very good Windows. Uh, it is not something you have to go run out and get right now, though. I would wait until you need to buy a new computer for whatever reason. If your machine's old or slow or breaks eventually or runs out of space, whatever it is. And then it'll have Windows 7 on it, which, in my experience, is always better than installing it on an older machine from scratch. It's a lot less work. Yeah, it costs some money. But it's also more likely to be bug-free. Now, with that said, what do you like about Windows 7? You know, it's a little hard to describe on the radio. If you were to sit down with it and use it, I could show you five or six things on it that it does differently. In terms of, for example, maximizing a window, uh, setting two windows side by side to evenly fill the screen, uh, finding all the windows you have open within your browser, uh, looking at all the programs you have open at one time. These can all be done in Vista and, of course, in XP as well, the older system. But they are so much slicker and more visual clear in uh, Windows 7 that you end up being able to to grok things, as we say, or to really uh, figure out what's where and get to it on your machine a lot faster. Plus, search is much better. It's almost like Google search now. When you search for things on your computer, it'll come back with results that are kind of like Google. So you'll get the name of the file, the file location, and maybe the first few lines of the document will pop up, like on a Google result, which has the first few lines of the document on the Internet. Um, lots of little things. Is it a night and day difference in running your computer? No. That's why I say you can wait till you buy a new computer, but you'll really like Windows 7 when you get it. Okay, I'm with you. Um, do, do you find, though, Brian, that most of us will never use the features that are in an operating system? Or... Oh, yeah. Most of us, you know, they say, I don't know if this is research or anecdote, but they say that 90% of people use only 10% of the features in Microsoft Office, for example, in Word or po certainly in PowerPoint or Excel. But, you know, Word's the one people know the best, and even then they say we only use about 10% of the features in it. So, wow, there's a lot of stuff there we never touch. And I believe that. It absolutely makes sense to me. Same thing with the operating system. I'm not sure it's quite that stark a number, but I know that the majority of people use a minority of the features that are in Windows, any Windows, even going back to XP or before that. Uh, I'm always showing people little tricks that they can do in the operating system to make things a little easier, and they don't know that. And it's like, all right, and there are a lot that I don't know that I could learn. And uh, it's a big, complicated thing, but that's okay. If you're using the operating system and it's working for you, uh, that's fine. You don't need to use it all just to say you do. That isn't the point. You don't get more value out of your operating system purchase by saying, well, I'm using every feature. I didn't need them, but darn it, I went out and I made myself use them. That isn't the idea. The idea is to get what you want out of it. Yeah, it feels good to use every bit of what you bought, but that doesn't really matter with software. It's not like you, you bought some food and you let some go to waste and you throw it away. It's not quite the same model. Okay. Now, one of the features that I read about that was going to be in Windows 7 was that it's going to be solid state drive ready, which is basically flash memory starting up your computer would be hella fast, much faster than a hard drive. 
Have you got to play with solid-state drives at all, Brian? I have yet to use Windows 7 with a solid-state drive, so I can't tell you right now if it's dramatically faster on boot, which is the key thing. I can tell you this. Uh, the solid-state drives, we are unimpressed by the current early generation of them in terms of being fast-booting devices, regardless of what operating system. And most of them do come on netbooks these days with Windows of some flavor. Uh, they're not booting as fast as they should. Uh, in some cases, they'll maybe boot half in half the time. So instead of a minute or so to boot your computer's 30 seconds, or instead of 90 seconds, it's 45. That's not night and day to me. It's better, but it's not night and day. I want a machine that wakes up in three or four seconds, right? That's fast boot to me, not a minute or a minute and change. We're not there yet on the hardware in our experience in the real world. Um, and also the operating systems, you know, they need to wait for the devices that are that fast to optimize to those devices. So if you're going to go buy a solid-state hard drive now because you're going to have instant on, you're going to be disappointed. Buy it now because you want a machine that weighs less, significantly so, if it's a small computer. Big computers, the difference isn't enough of a percentage. And because you want to use a little less power, solid-state drives, if you pick the right one or the right machine that has the right one, uh, it should use a little less power. But again, that needs to come a long way, too. They don't exactly turn your battery life into double just because you've got a solid-state drive. Speaking with Brian Cooley, editor-at-large for CNET, Apple came out with some new product this week. Oddly enough, at the same time that Microsoft came out with new products. It was a big week. It was a big week. Now, some new iMacs, some new um, MacBooks, a a Magic Mouse. Yeah, the mouse is perhaps the most interesting. Um, Imagine an Apple mouse like you see today, white and kind of sleek, but with no visible buttons whatsoever. The entire thing is a control surface. So that slick white top, you can draw your finger across it just about any direction, and you can move the cursor or even scroll the screen up and down. You can uh, click or drag with one finger or two, and it'll do different things. So, for example, if you want to swipe through photos, kind of slide them across the screen, you can run two fingers across the mouse, left or right, drag them left or right, and that's a photo swipe versus one finger is a navigate across the window move. So you got to learn the way this thing works, but it's kind of like the top of the mouse is a touchpad, and it's a mouse. You move it around the table, and you can click on things. Plus, the fact that it has no physical buttons on there, you can easily uh, fix it in software so it's left-hand compatible, which a lot of folks love. Is it a gimmick, or will it catch on, in your opinion? We are kind of split. We had a we, we did a chat about this a few days ago on our Buzz Out Loud podcast, and about half of us think it's really cool, and half of us think it's really goofy. So this is one of those things where it doesn't matter if it's a hit. If you like the feel of it, it's you're, you're going to love it, because it really has a lot of innovation in it, and a lot of other folks will say, eh, I'm okay with the uh, mouse that has a little trackball on it, or the mice that have buttons. Um, but it's, it's worth playing with down at an Apple store if you're a Mac user. The new Macs come with it, all the desktop Macs, of course, iMacs and, and Mac Pros. Uh, the uh, other machines, you can buy one for it for $69, and it connects via Bluetooth. There's no wire. At CNET, I'm sure you get a lot of products a little bit earlier than everyone else. A couple times. Have you seen anything on an Apple tablet? What are you hearing on the Apple tablet? No, you know, we get get things early from everybody except Apple, like everybody else. No one gets Apple stuff early. Apple's, you know, as you know so well, is locked down like a drum. Uh, The Apple tablet is the hottest rumor around right now. It was uh, possibly coming out this fall. That's obviously not going to happen at this point in the year. It's pretty safe a bet. Uh, So we now look ahead to the top of January when the big consumer electronics show takes place that you know well. And will Apple do 
an announcement there or at the same time somewhere else because they're not going to be at Macworld this year. They've pulled out of that whole deal. And that was the big announcement that we had early this year. So what's Apple going to do in January? Apple always does something big early January, and it's part of their cycle of refreshing their products. They can't just skip it because they have a relentless pace of innovation. So I expect something in January. I don't know exactly when. And will it be the Apple tablet? That wouldn't surprise me at this point, but it's becoming one of those apocryphal stories where, you know, you wonder if they're ever going to bring it out now or if we've all been led down the primrose path. But I think it's a smart idea because it can go after the netbooks that are so hot. It can go after the e-readers from Sony, from Kindle, from Barnes & Noble that are getting some real momentum. And it can go after the smartphones, Apple's included, because it's a much better portable Internet device than even an iPhone or an Android phone or any of the other ones out there. I'm going to head to break here, Brian, but I'm going to bring back for another segment. I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you a little bit about Kindle ebooks and yep. what your thoughts are. Google Office. I'm going to ask about automotive technology and applications in cars. We know about applications with the iPhone, but applications in cars. So we'll be right back with that. It's the Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. It's talk910.com. If you want to get a podcast of the show, 910 AM, more stimulating talk. Speaking with Brian Cooley, editor-at-large for CNET. Brian, I absolutely positively want a Kindle, but I want someone to give it to me. I want it as a gift or maybe because I'm a big wig in media. I want to use my clout. I don't want to buy it myself <laughs> because I still like my books and I still like my You still my like newspapers. your dollars, too. Yeah. I st- well, even more importantly, I, to me, it's like a gimmick. It's a gadget that I don't really have to have. Otherwise, I'd go out and buy it is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I'm kind of there, too. I'm uh, I'm not close to buying a Kindle. I, I, I like the idea. I get it. I see all the value to it. I'm not there yet at the same time. Uh, part of it is the price. It's expensive, I still think, uh, even though it's come down a lot in price, but still seems pricey to me. I don't read enough bookstore books. There are plenty of other things I read. I don't read a lot of books per se. I'm reading a lot of web stuff these days. I still read a lot of magazines, which can get uh, some can come on the Kindle or not, but I don't know. I'm not that convinced, but I think we're seeing enough of a critical mass with the Sony Reader, the Amazon Kindle, the new Barnes & Noble Nook, which was just rolled out, but we don't have an availability date yet, but we have a price, $259. And of course, Amazon and Barnes want to steer you to buy the books from their uh, stores to prop up their devices. Uh, Google is continuing to to push a very aggressive uh, book digitization project, which is yet to be tied to a reader. And then we just heard this week that the Internet Archive, which is archive.org, this fascinating thing that archives just about every website every day and has since the dawn of the Internet, is also launching a platform where any publisher can put their books in any kind of a sale or free download form. They just want to be the framework where e-books are distributed from and let you figure out as a publisher how you want to monetize or not the distribution. So lots of things have happened this second half to really show that there is momentum behind e-books. But um, we don't know yet where it's going to fall in terms of there being a device that does everything, or do you have to go buy a separate e-book reader going forward? It's one more gadget to pay for, to charge, to carry, to potentially lose or break. Yeah, and maybe as a professional athlete and I'm always on the road, maybe I get it. Well, business travelers love these. I see them in airports all the time because that's one of the places where you can really appreciate having a thin reader, even if you only have one book on it. 
It's better than carrying any bestseller at two inches, three inches of thickness, and four, five, six, seven, eight inches of you know cross section. Big old dumb thing gets in your laptop bag and just drives you crazy. So the Kindle or the other readers are great right off the bat if you travel a lot. So people who live on a plane, they are one of the first markets for this. And at the same time, there's a value because you can get the books for $10 versus $40. Yes. So the distribution's not quite right yet. Stephen King just announced that his new book's going to be only in hardback for the first six weeks so that he doesn't basically screw the publishers and the mom-and-pop uh, bookstores. Yeah, and the publishers have yet to you know figure out how this new model works. They're at the point that the music industry was uh, six, seven years ago where the video, TV, and movie industry has been for a couple years, and the books are the latest, which is, okay, the world's changing. We have to do what businesses often have to do. We have to change, but as we change, we can't just say, okay, we're going to have a couple crummy years of no of lousy earnings because we're in churn. They can't do that. That's why they're afraid. Otherwise, these guys, most of them see business, of whether it's movies, music, books, they see where the future is. They're not stupid, but they have to deliver every quarter on their earnings. And so going through a transition usually means you end up changing your model, how you deliver, you end up kissing goodbye to legacy revenue while you wait to ramp up future revenue, or you do both with higher costs. And, you know, you've seen this so many times in the tech space. It's it's a difficult thing, and that breeds fear in the executives behind these companies. But they know they're going to get there. If they tell you they're not, they're kidding or they're deluding themselves. Now, Netflix came out with numbers last night, earnings, and I was a little surprised by this. Do you know what percentage of Americans, Brian, use Netflix? I actually don't. What was the number? 9.6% of American households use Netflix. Do you feel that's big or small? I feel that's huge. I feel it's huge, too. Yeah. 21% in San Francisco. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) That's the difference there, isn't there? Absolutely. But, yeah, no, Netflix is no longer, you know, once you hit 10%, yeah, that's not a majority by any stretch, but you're no longer niche. That's always been one of the yardsticks out there for technology adoption that says, okay, you're now for real, and unless something dramatically comes along to replace your product or service, you're here for a long run. So, yeah, Netflix is real. Netflix has hit that point that uh, that TiVo hit after a few years. It was that thing that tech people had until all of a sudden everybody had it because it got uh, pushed out through a lot of different other platforms like cable companies. Uh, The Netflix idea, of course, is going to uh, be part of the future of how they do business. They're going to get out of the disc business one of these days. I, I, I'm Less than 10 years, more than five is my, is my gut. Uh, who wants to ship discs around? That's not a good part of their business. That's the part they hate. The part they like is solving people's appetite for movies with as little friction as possible at a great cost. And, of course, that gimmick of being able to pay one fee and watch as many movies as you want, just how many you have at once, that kind of gets erased now by this Internet delivery thing because you're never going to have discs in your house. So there's no more rule of you have three at a time. They'll rework the rules. They're going to have discless uh, business going forward, but they are not the only company. We're seeing televisions. We're seeing DVD players. We're seeing all kinds of game consoles that have access built into TV and movies, including high def, over the Internet, and the Internet becomes a competitor for cable and satellite. It's not about an Internet experience with a browser. It's about using the Internet as a new pipeline that creates low-cost, on-demand distribution. How soon do we get to you or me or 5% of America has internet TV and can get content in it that we really want and not have a 50-inch screen and watch a 5-inch YouTube oh, video. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's, it's early days. You can do it now. You can buy an LG or a Samsung TV or a Blu-ray disc player or a Netflix Roku box that will take video from the internet and make it look good on the screen. It isn't always high def, but it's never the super blown-up pixelated thing you can do with a laptop hooked up to your TV. That's that's meh. That's just a, a hack. 
Uh, but you can do it today. I've seen great products that do it. They're on the market. Uh, the Roku Netflix box is 100 bucks, and it's very popular, as a niche product anyway. Uh, the TVs tend to cost a few hundred dollars more, but that'll, that'll level out. And the Blu-ray disc players that have this ability in them, you know, again, they're a little more expensive, but all the Blu-ray stuff's a little more expensive. So you're going to see this become the norm. And within... Uh, Two or three years, I would expect most TVs and DVD players will have an Internet connection to them and can go get video on the net from whoever they partner with, whether it's Yahoo Widgets, whether it's Netflix, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Blockbuster, whoever may be in the business. Now, one of the things you do for CNET, I'm speaking with Brian Cooley, editor-at-large for CNET. You can find him at CNET.com. Um, he's all over. You can see him at Best Buy. You can see him on CNBC. I mean, you're, you get around, which is nice. You can see me at most bars in downtown San Francisco. I've been there with you. you we've been there. we got to set up another drinking night. You're right. Um, ultimate mobile device is a car. You threw that concept in my head last time we talked, and it stuck. Yeah. Next big thing in automobile technology. You just did an article on applications. Yeah and widgets for car technology. Tell me more. This is, uh, there's two things going on there that I want to touch on. One is the idea, there's been research coming out, I think uh, iSupply, which does a lot of research into the market for technology, recently put out a, a, a piece that says, you know, one of the biggest areas for app development isn't just for smartphones, the app store for the Apple, the app store for the BlackBerry, but it's apps that either connect your smartphone to your car for media playback, navigation, what have you, so the services on your phone show up on your car well, or that actually you install on the car. Not on the smartphone. The area when you can get software for your car is going to be here sooner than later. You already have USB ports on many cars today for playing media, but all they have to do is unlock that software so that you can also load programs. It makes the car makers nervous because they like a closed camp so they can validate and verify everything on the car so it's not a liability issue. But they can sandbox that technology so that all you can do is load, let's say, new media software, new media players and not affect any other part of the car. Then they'll be comfortable with it and not feel like it's a liability, and yet you can customize your car then. You can load a different OS, if you will, a different operating system for the dashboard screen where your media plays. I'm not talking about the instruments and that kind of thing. Um, people are already putting computers in their car. It's homebrew stuff, but there are operating systems out there that are just meant for the car. And we're also seeing efforts on two or three fronts where car makers are trying to get an, an operating system that they all use, just like we all use Windows or the Mac OS or Linux, but we have really one major operating system is Windows and then one semi-major Mac uh, that runs all our computers. It's not like we have in the car business where there are 10 or 20 car makers and they all use a different proprietary base operating system to run the electronics. That's crazy, and it makes it hard to develop because no developer can say, I'm going to write this application for the car, and all the car makers can use it if they just want to license it from me. No, you got to write it differently for many different car makers. That slows innovation. Uh, so that's going to be another effort we're seeing, and there are two or three industry consortia right now that say, yeah, let's get this done. Let's figure out if it's going to be Java. Is it going to be a new OS we invent from scratch? The Japanese makers have their idea. The Europeans have another one. The American car makers are just, well, they're just busy staying in business. But we'll see an operating system in cars that allows the innovation on that LCD screen to move ahead much faster, and it will let you update your car in the time that you own it. Whereas right now, when you buy a car, what that LCD screen shows and does never changes. That will change in the future. You'll be able to change it like you do your computer. Brian, one of the things at CNET.com that made me snicker and actually giggle was you do car reviews there. Oh, uh, yeah, lots of them. And I, I like the car reviews. I like the idea. I mean, how applicable is a car to my life and issues like that. But when you see four out of five stars, uh -huh. 
it's an odd way of thinking about whether or not you want to buy a car. <laughs> I know. And we look at the tech. We're not that focused on the other stuff. You know, we don't get into how many seats it has and is it good for carrying home stuff from Ikea and all that. We leave that to Consumer Reports and the rest of the guys. And we don't spend a whole lot of time on the skid pad. We leave that to the hot rod magazines that think every car is supposed to be a race car. We look at cars from the high-tech usability, so the cabin instruments... The engine, the transmission, the braking systems, there's high-tech everywhere. That's how we look at cars. They are rolling high-tech experiences now. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Rob, thanks for having me on. Brian Cooley, editor-at-large for CNET. Used to be my boss. Good guy, knowledgeable guy. I could talk to him for hours and hours. He's a Bay Area legend in my book. It's Rob Black Show, 9, 10 a.m., more stimulating talk. I can't sleep because my bed's on fire. Don't touch me, I'm a real-life wire. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.